We have been studying through, and we will continue looking at the book of Philippians. So if you have a smartphone with you that you'd like to turn to the Bible, you can go to Philippians chapter 2, or if you have your Bibles with you, turn to them. It is an opportunity that we've had to hear how the Apostle Paul, at a time in which he was in prison in Rome, and think about that, the guy's sitting in prison for something he didn't do any different than what we're doing here this morning. He was a Christian. He was a follower of Christ. He was accused of setting up churches and gathering for worship. Now, we say, why would somebody be arrested for that? Well, in the Roman world, in the first century, that was seen as a seditious act because there was a concern that, what are these Christians doing? We were a new faith. People couldn't understand why they were doing this and gathering together. Were they starting some kind of revolution? And so Paul gets arrested and he's in prison. Hasn't done anything wrong. He's simply been trying to spread the message of God's love and God's peace and God's grace and the way in which we're reconciled to God. And there in prison, he writes this letter of encouragement. And I always find that amazing. Like, this last week, I had a chance to do some work with some of the youth in our church, and I talked to them. I said, if you were unfairly accused and you were in prison, what would you be feeling? Anger, they said. Frustration. Maybe asking questions like, why did it happen to me rather than someone else? I said, isn't that interesting? Because that's not what Paul does. Paul goes to being positive and telling others how not only is he learned to have joy in his life, but we can all have joy in our life no matter what we face. And that's because Paul knew who he was. He was a servant of Christ. If you go to the very beginning of his letter, that's who he dresses himself. I, Paul, a servant of Christ. And now as he's addressing these people, as we get to chapter 2, he's writing to this church in Philippi, and he's telling them things about how they should identify themselves, which is how we should identify ourselves. Hear that? This letter is written to us also. And listen in verse 15 to who he says we should be, especially think of the world that we live in today. Now, do we live in a world that has some problems? I like the, get, the laughter. Okay. Is everything in your society the exact way you would like it to be? Probably not. Okay. We live in a world that certainly has its own share of problems. Well, so did the world that Paul lived in. And listen to he, what he says we can be in verse 15. You may become blameless and pure children of God. Right there, that's pretty good. I can be a blameless and pure child of God, listen to this, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. That sort of describes our world today. We sort of lived in a warped and crooked generation. And so when you get frustrated and you look at things out there and you say, how can things be this way? Realize you have an ally in Paul. He's living in a world in which he's frustrated over how things are in his society. And he certainly doesn't, you know, write to us and say everything is great in the first century. He's telling us that it's a tough time to live, just like every day is a tough time to live. We have this tendency to think, oh, this is the worst of all times. That's not true. Christians and people of faith have always felt that way. We've always been able to look out and see the stuff that we just don't like and say, how in the world can this be happening? And now in this section... Paul's giving us his identity of who am I? Who am I? How do I live? Not only how did he live, who am I? Who do I view myself? I get up in the morning. Am I Stan the pastor? Am I Stan the dad? Am I Stan the husband? Or am I first and foremost a child of God? How about you? What's your first identity? Is your job your identity? 
Is a relationship your identity? Is being a parent your identity? Paul wants us to understand that our first identity, our first way of understanding who we are, is our relationship with God. We're beloved children of God living in a crooked generation. Can't control the stuff out there, but we can certainly control ourselves and see who we are. Our passage says, chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I love this word. Next word. Ready? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. We could just read that for the next 10 minutes and probably never go beyond that. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. So that you may become blameless, pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So too, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Hear that word of encouragement? Rejoice, be glad. Life's tough, it's awful. The world out there like really stinks and there's really bad things and it's a crooked and perverse generation. But rejoice with me because we found a way to overcome the world. Jesus tells us the same thing. So how do we do that? How do we go from being cynical and negative and full of anxiety and frustrations? We're calling this series Anxious No More so that we're not looking at life from this negative perspective. And how do we have a change in our life so that no matter what's going on out there, no matter what chaos there is, no matter what's happened in our life, no matter what happens around us, we can have this same kind of faith that's joy-filled and we can learn to rejoice. Well, it begins not by trying to impress people. Hear that? It doesn't begin by impressing people. It doesn't begin by standing around and saying, oh, I've learned the secret of life. All the while, we're grumbling and negative. Some people try to do that. We try to act as if we have it all together when we don't. Paul doesn't say begin that way. Instead, he says this, faith is how we live when no one's looking. It's not how we act and say in front of people when they're around us and we're trying to impress people, but it's how we live when nobody's taking any look at our life, when we're all by ourselves, when we're deep in our own thoughts, what are the things we think of? What are the things we read? What are the things we focus on? What are the attitudes we have? That's where the work gets done. Amen? That's where the work gets done. That's where we get ourselves in trouble. We don't get ourselves in trouble when we're around a bunch of positive friends and we're having a nice lunch and we're saying, yeah, I've got this and life is okay. No, it's at those moments when we just go to our heads and we start thinking and things don't go the way that we want them in our own head. And that's why Paul begins this section. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Yes, Paul's saying, when I was there and I was a pastor and I was setting up your church and I was getting everything going and I could encourage you, I saw how you were living a good life. But now I'm not there. I'm sitting here in prison. I'm not going to come check on you. So how do you live when I'm not around? How do you live when the person who started your church, who's this beloved apostle who you're so proud that Paul came in and he started the church and things are going well, but now he's sitting in prison and he said, you know, now is when you got to do the work. Now is when your faith really needs to be an obedient faith because it's really when no one's watching, when no one's looking at how we live. That quote comes from Soren Kierkegaard, the great Dutch philosopher. 
Faith is how we live when no one's watching. The word obey, which is what Paul is using here, is a word for listen. Are we listening to God? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit in your life during those times in your life when, when things aren't going the way we want them to go? I was home from break from college, and I was living at the time in Indiana. My parents were in Reynolds, North Dakota. And I needed to borrow my dad's car because I didn't have a car. I'd flown home, and, and my dad let me take the car and go out with some friends. And he said, what you need to do is, he said, I've had a little bit of problem with the car. You've got to watch the temperature gauge. I said, yeah, sure, Dad. He goes, no, you've got to watch the temperature gauge. You really need to make sure that you, you don't let the temperature go really high because I've been having trouble with the car, and the car could overheat, and it could do a lot of damage. And he said, one of the ways you'll know it is, he said, the heat will quit working. He said, it kind of doesn't make sense to you probably, but something blocks up, and if you turn the heat on all the way, you'll get nothing but cold air. So I drive. I come home. have a beautiful day with my friend. Drive into the driveway. There's smoke billowing out of the car and all kinds of stuff that I'm totally oblivious to. My dad comes running out of the house, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? He said, the car, it's overheated. I said, huh, the car's overheated? He said, don't you remember I told you to watch the temperature gauge? I said, you told me to look at the temperature gauge? He said, did you listen? Well, we destroyed the block in that car. Fortunately, we lived in a farming community where somebody was able to plane it down and, and rescue the car. Otherwise, the car would have been totally destroyed. I didn't listen. I paid no attention to what my dad was saying. As a college home, kid home from school just wanting to borrow a car, and everything he said didn't go in one year and out the other. It didn't even go in the first year to begin with. We've all experienced it where we say to someone, you haven't heard a word I said to you, have you? Perhaps, have you ever had that said to you? You're not listening. What Paul is telling us is to obey, which means to listen. He's saying, listen to God. Not just when I'm around and reminding you of the things. Not just when life goes bad and takes a negative turn. But listen and obey all the time. In verse, chapter 1, verse 27, he sort of explained what that means when he said, Live a life worthy of the gospel. Do we hear those words? Are we listening? Live a life worthy of the gospel. Realize that those times when our cynicism and our negative attitudes and our, and our desire to say something that just blurts out and we get ourselves in trouble for the words that we say, stop and live a life worthy of the gospel. Think about the fact that what the gospel is, God coming into this world in the form of Christ, loving you and me so much that if you were the only person on this world who ever did something wrong, Jesus gave his life for you. That's incredible. Now Paul says, obey, listen, Hear what he's saying. Live a life worthy of that. That's making a choice every day, isn't it? That's living how we live when no one else is watching us. It's making a choice to do the hard work, to forgive, to understand, to help the person, to reach out and listen to the person who just drives us up a wall and they want to talk one more time and want to live a life worthy of the gospel. If God cared that much about me, how do I listen and care for that other person? And when we start doing that, not because others are watching, but because it's the right way to live, and we start listening to God's word and start taking those suggestions into our life and start living different and following the example of Christ, God starts changing us. 
And that anxiety for life starts going away. One of the reasons I'm absolutely convinced that 21st century Christians have such a hard time is because we don't pay attention to our thoughts and what we do at all those other times. You see, we can dress ourselves up on the outside and look one way, and this is really about what's going on inside. Nobody knows what's going on in your brain except for you and God. And Paul says, learn to make that brain obedient to God to live the way God wants us to live. And then we start seeing the change in our life because the second thing we discover is that salvation is a gift, but sanctification takes work. We all love salvation. We love being saved and rescued and God's taken care of us. We know that the ultimate salvation story is that Jesus came into this world and died on the cross to take our sins, to rescue us from all the negativity. He takes away that sin from our life means the things that you and I have done wrong, we're forgiven for. That's a gift. That's amazing. I don't have to pay the price for any of the hurts and pains and willful acts and disobedient acts I've done in my life. I'm rescued from all of that. But that requires then work for me, which we call sanctification. We read about that in verse last part of verse 12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Yes, salvation is that life preserver that we have in our life. That fact that God has rescued us. A number of years ago, Todd was still in high school, and I love to run, but sometimes I make really stupid decisions. And it was a hot summer day, and I didn't take any water with me. And I thought I was younger than I was, and I thought I was in better shape than I was, and I ended up about three miles out in the country, and I just came to a dead stop. Fortunately, I had my cell phone with me. It's about all I had taken with me, and I realized I could barely walk. I was like, how did I do this? And I called my son, and I asked him to come rescue me. Now, I told this story in Lawn Chair Church, and Laura started to laugh because this story has been told a number of times in our family because I was anything but a good mood when my son got there. I was like angry and frustrated and all kinds of stuff. And how did this happen? But I needed to be rescued. We need to be rescued at times in our life. We've all had those times in our life when something happens and somebody comes in and rescues. And we're appreciative of that. But what do we do then? Just keep doing the same thing over and over? Do you think the next day I did the exact same thing and got saved again by my son? No, we don't do that. We learn from that. Well, the same thing is true in our relationship with God. That's why salvation is once for all. We're forgiven for our sins Christ has died on the cross for us. We come to that moment where we experience that grace and salvation. We don't need to just keep coming to that same place over and over because if we do, we never grow in our Christian life. It's not that God just keeps rescuing us. Now the second part is what we call sanctification. That's when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the work that we do so that God works in us. That's what sanctification is. It's getting to be better. It's a churchy word, but it's a great word because it means I improve in life. I don't keep doing the same things over and over. I let the hard work that I do get mixed in with what God does in my life, and I start to improve. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. Do you hear that? When I make the right choices, then the Holy Spirit works in my life. When I choose to make the decision to not say something when I want to say it, and I bite my tongue, as my mother used to say. She literally would do it like this. She'd demonstrate, bite your tongue, Stan. When I bite my tongue and I don't say the things, then God starts changing me and I don't say the things. 
when I say something positive and encouraging to someone else, and it becomes easier to do because God works in us. When I face a difficulty in my life and a thing that I'm very fearful of, I, I don't know how I'm going to face this, and then I say, no, I'm going to do the hard work of faith, and I'm going to trust God. I'm going to put it in God's hands. Then the Holy Spirit works within your life, and then it becomes easier and easier. And then people will say one day, wow, it's amazing. My life has just gotten better. Yes, because as we do the work, as we work out our salvation, as we do the things that God asks us to do and become obedient, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit changes us. I compare that to the difference between being saved by my son out on a run versus what happened during the beginning of this pandemic. I had gotten injured last year, and I hadn't been running for a while. That's probably why you hadn't heard me talking about running, and it was about March, and I realized, you know, I wanted to get back out, but I had gone quite a while without running. And I knew that it is a process to get back in shape. It doesn't happen like that. I can't go out for a 10-mile run. So I started from scratch, and I went out for a walk and walked another day and then did a little bit of a jog and just kept moving forward. Yesterday, I did an 8-mile run. Last week, I did a 10-mile run. That takes time to get there. That's the process of changing. That's the same thing that happens in our spiritual life. You don't accept Christ as Savior and say, oh, that's it. I'm going to go out as a missionary to Africa and change the world. People try to do that, and they wonder why their life doesn't get better. That's not how the Bible teaches about salvation. That'd be like saying, I, I heard Pastor Stan talking about running. I'm going to go run a marathon this afternoon. Not going to happen. You see, the process of becoming the people God wants us to be is guarding our minds and our thoughts, realizing how we live when people aren't watching matters, and doing the hard work of making those changes. And then he says, and do it with fear and trembling. We stop and we go, aha, there it is. I knew it. I've been attending this church for a while, and I knew the pastor was finally going to give me all that guilt and fear and trembling stuff. There it is, vengeful, angry, resentful God. But that's not what Paul says at all. He's not saying be fearful and cower before God. He's talking about the power of God. He's saying, remember in your life, if you're going to get better, and you're going to have improvement, and you're going to have growth, and you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, you better have some respect for that Holy Spirit, because there's power behind God. Remember in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles have the power of the Holy Spirit that comes on them, the word that's used is the word dunamis, which is the same word we have for dynamite, because there's power in the Holy Spirit. And when we take our spiritual life flippantly, when we don't think it matters, when we think, I'm a Christian, but I can live just any way we want, it is amazing how much damage we can have happen in our lives. If you don't believe it, look at some of the national leaders who say, that's fine, I, I built a great ministry, it doesn't matter how I live. And all of a sudden, something awful happens, and they realize there is a danger and thinking somehow I can just live any way I want, and think that there's no power. The, the power of God and the things that can happen require us to have a decent respect for it, because that same power is the stuff that's able to change us in our lives, and that's why it's important. As a child growing up in the Dakotas, my father used to tell me, because I'd spend time out on the farms with my friends, he said, always be careful of a tractor because it's got this power takeoff, which is this big wheel that would spin around. And he said, don't get too close to it. You can do incredible amount of damage. Now, I didn't sit and cower and be afraid of a tractor, but I had a healthy respect for the power that that tractor had. And then one day, I met a kid who came to our school 
who had lost his arm because he had gotten too close and had literally had ripped his arm off. You think I had a little bit of healthy respect for a tractor as a child growing up, having experienced that with a friend? That's how we're supposed to approach our spiritual life. We're supposed to say, I get it. It matters. It's got power. It's got the ability to change me. But I can't just treat it flippantly and act like it doesn't matter and then wonder why my life's not getting better. That as I choose to make those choices in my life, to live the way that God wants me to live, to do the hard work, to study the scripture at those times when I don't feel like studying or to take time to pray for somebody when it's been a long day, but I promised I was going to pray for somebody, so I'm going to stop and I'm going to have the prayer for them. Or when I... And you can put in the things in your life. I make the choice to show up for work 15 minutes early because I know that that's what I need to do as a Christian and as a, as a child of God and living the way that God wants me to live. But it's hard to do today, but I do it. And then pretty soon God starts changing us from the inside out and we grow and we become the people that God wants us to be and we become the most useful and our anxiety starts going down and our frustration starts going down because we start changing and we start being able to handle stuff that we weren't able to handle before. And that's why Paul puts it into very simple terms. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Those are good words, aren't they? <laughs> do everything without grumbling or arguing. You see, negativity is like a brain disease. Studies have been done, and it shows that it not only can cause cardiovascular problems, negativity can cause digestive problems, and it even slows our ability to heal. When we're negative and we're cynical and we just buy into all the negativity of our society, it doesn't matter what your political persuasion is, you can find somebody on television that will just make you feel bad about everybody else in the world. You just tune it in 24 hours a day, they'll tell you everything that's wrong in this world. They can have you and me so upset that we don't know how to face anything. And Paul says, avoid that stuff. It starts with our thoughts and it starts with our speech. We know what grumbling is. It refers to what goes on inside of us. Grumbling. Can you believe what he did over there? Just, can you, I, can, what are you talking about? Why did he do that? We know what it is. You ever watch the movie, is it The Christmas Story? From It's a little kid who has a BB gun. We all know the story. Regina and I were a few years ago. We were in Cleveland, Ohio. And what do you do in Cleveland, Ohio? There's not really that much stuff to do. So we found out what the number one tourist attraction in Cleveland, Ohio, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Number two attraction in Cleveland, Ohio, Christmas Story House. I go, well, that sounds exciting. The story doesn't even take place in Cleveland. But hey, there it is. The story is right there. And they, all the pictures and all the filming was done right there. So we go and we take the, the tour of the, of the Christmas Story House. Did you know originally it wasn't supposed to be a children's movie and a kid's movie? It was actually supposed to be more of an adult movie. And the father was supposed to have swear profanity all through the movie. And the guy who was a producer said, let's make it more effective. Instead of having him say awful words, have him just go, watch the movie. He just grumbles all the time. That's who he is. He's just a grumbler. Paul says, avoid grumbling. It makes us unhealthy. It makes us negative. It makes us frustrated. It produces anxiety in our life. It keeps us from growing. And then he says, avoid arguing. This doesn't refer to what goes on inside us. This refers to what goes on outside of us. What a marvelous idea. I don't have to go to every fight I've invited to. <laughs> Ever think about that? 
I don't have to fight with everybody on every single time that they say something. I can just keep my mouth shut and smile, and they have no idea what I'm thinking. Remember, only you and God knows what goes on in your brain. At those times when all of a sudden you're thinking, if they only knew what I'm thinking, guess what? They don't know what you're thinking. That's the marvelous part of sanctification. When we keep our mouth shut and we learn to live a different way, God starts to change us. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of helping hire a secretary for one of the directors in our conference. And I was the chair of the hiring team. And I looked at the list of the potential candidates, and I think there were three or four of us who were going to sit on the hiring team and do all the interviews. And I noticed that one of the persons was somebody who was in the office all the time. And then I remembered, boy, that would be an interesting thing, because when that person and this director are together, all they do is just rip into people. They just talk about people and they just criticize people and the two of them just sit and they just say so many things that are negative. And when the list got down and I talked to the director, she said, oh, I would never hire that person. And I said, why? And she said, because she's too negative. Isn't that interesting? We see what others do, we don't see our part. We see the others who argue. We see the others who argue with us. Do we see that it takes two to have that argument? We see the others who grumble and the others who complain. Do we see our part with it? And that's what Paul's inviting us to do, to live a sanctified life, to grow in our faith, to become the people that God wants us to be. I think we're all like that. We hold others to a little higher standard, and then we wonder why we're anxious. I can't believe this world I live in. I can't believe what they're doing now. I can't believe this. Can you believe that that's happening? Can that happen in my town? Can you believe that happened in here? Here in Plymouth, I can't believe that that took place. And we just get ourselves all upset. And yet Paul is sitting in prison for nothing he did wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. He spread the gospel. He told people to love each other and to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm happy. I'm joy-filled. And I want to teach you how to be joy-filled. I want you to teach you to experience the same thing, that you can rejoice with me. That's why I believe that it really comes down to acceptance. If I had to put one word on, on this passage, it's really acceptance. It's really learning to accept life on life's terms and realize when we accept life on life's terms and we look back at ourselves and say, how does God need to work in my life to turn me into the person that God's trying to make me be? That's why I use the serenity prayer so often. That's why we have it on our church website. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I often will take people who are struggling with something, and I'll say at that point, write down everything you can't change. I can't change my boss. I can't change my spouse. I can't change my house. I can't change my neighborhood. I can't change the town of Plymouth. I can't change the world. I can't change the fact that there's going to be an election this fall. You can just go through it. There's a million things you can't change. God, grant me the serenity, the peace to accept all that. Then give me the courage to change the things I can. There's only three things we can ever change. Those are me, myself, and I. So that's always a shorter list. And then I point out that the thing is, is the next part of the prayer, and the wisdom to know the difference. You see, we take the things we can't change, and we try to change them, and we forget the things we can change, which is ourself and our thoughts and how we choose to live each day and work out our salvation so God can work in us. And as long as we're working over here and doing the wrong thing, our lives don't get better. But once we start working here, our lives improve. 
That's why a friend of mine is fond of saying, did you know you control your thoughts? Your thoughts don't control you. Hear that? You control your thoughts. Your thoughts don't control you. That's a word to live by as a Christian because far too many people think that those thoughts and all that stuff that goes on in our head, we don't have any control over. Oh, yes, we do. That's what Paul's writing about here. We get to choose that, to make that choice at every single moment to say, I'm going to shut that out. I'm going to think different. I'm going to choose to be positive. I'm going to choose to work on myself. I'm going to choose to accept the fact that there's stuff I do not like and I wish isn't happening, didn't happen, won't happen, but I have got to learn to accept it. When I work with people in recovery, one of my favorite things to turn to is a section of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, where it says, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Do you hear that? Acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it's because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact in my life unacceptable to me. I can find no serenity till I can accept that person, place, thing, or situation. One day, somebody called me up on the phone, and they were upset. And I said to them these words. I said, you know what I've learned? When I'm upset, I'm upset. The person said, yeah, I know. This, this is upsetting me. I said, no. What I've learned is when I'm upset, I'm upset. And they said, yes, I know that this upsets me, and this upsets me, and this upsets me. And I said, let me try it again. What I've learned in life is when I'm upset... I'm upset. And the person said, so you're telling me it's my fault for being upset? I said, oh, no, I'm telling you it's my fault when I'm upset. I have to learn to accept life on life's terms. I have no choice. I have no choice. I do have a choice, and the choice is to let it drive me crazy and to affect my sanctification and keep me from growing as a Christian. But as I accept, it doesn't mean I like things. It, uh, liking and accepting are different. Accepting is just accepting. It just is what it is. There are things that just are. The election, folks, is going to happen. 50% of our country is going to think the kingdom of God is here. And 50% of the country is going to think that the world is ended. And you know what? They're both wrong. It just is. It's just going to happen. And if all we can do in an election season is allow ourselves just to be all upset, it only affects us. It only destroys our serenity, our peace of mind, and our ability to grow as Christians. Unless I accept life completely in life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. That's what I believe the Apostle Paul is talking about in the second chapter of Philippians. As he helps us understand, faith is how we live when no one's looking. Salvation is a gift from God, but we don't need to just keep being saved over and over. We need to do the work of sanctification to start doing the hard work so God can change us from the inside out. And then we need to learn to do everything without grumbling and complaining and arguing. And as we do that, our lives get better because we start getting molded into the people God wants us to be. It's amazing how much time and energy we spend on things we have no control over. And Paul says, but you have control over the most important thing, your mind. Who are you? Who am I? That's really the question. Because if I see it the way that God wants me to see it, I discover something amazing. I don't discover that the world becomes a better place. I discover that you and I are children of God without fault, living in a warped and crooked generation 
and then we will shine among them like stars in the sky. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to shine. Help us to be touched by your grace and your love so that we can be the people you want us to be. Help us to understand that we have control of our thoughts, we have control over how we choose to live today and who we listen to. And help us listen to the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, transforming us from the inside out. We thank you for an opportunity to be in worship and we pray your blessing on us in this week ahead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.